Welcome to Litigation Strategies, the podcast that discusses all things litigation, from filing a small claims lawsuit to closing arguments in a murder trial. We dive into handling a case from beginning to the end. Your co-hosts are Daniel Coble and myself, Joe Berry, former assistant solicitors for the Fifth Judicial Circuit and currently in private practice. We're pleased to have you with us, and now, this episode of Litigation Strategies. Welcome to Litigation Strategies. My name is Daniel Coble. Joe couldn't make it today. He had a family medical matter, but we have a very special guest today. And I know I say that every time, but this time I truly do mean it. We have the Honorable Justice John Cannon Few of the South Carolina Supreme Court. Thank you for being here, Your Honor. You're welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to be here with you. Thank you. Well, we know you don't need any introduction, but I still have to give you an introduction. You have a very long biography, but just to hit some of the highlights, uh, Justice John Cannon Few, he has sat on the South Carolina Supreme Court since his election in 2016. Before taking the bench as a judge and justice, Justice Few was a trial lawyer for nearly a decade, practicing in state and federal court all throughout South Carolina. He was then elected to the circuit court as a judge in the year 2000, and then elected to the chief judge for the South Carolina Court of Appeals in 2010. Justice Few has written and taught extensively on the law. One of his main areas, which is what we'll get into today, which is one of the most important, are the rules of evidence. Justice Few teaches an advanced evidence class at USC, and he holds an annual CLE on trial evidence. So, Your Honor, with with all that being said, did I get it all right? Did I leave anything out? Uh, You did pretty well. Thank you. (laughs) Well, there's a lot more. And and one, one of your big highlights, I met him a few weeks ago, your son, Cannon, is a big time musical artist. So we'll have to give him a shout out, maybe play a little clip of his music, but been very impressed with that. That sounds great. I know somebody who loves you and drop the obligations when you got no one to run to. I know you got a past, but I got one to, and that's on change the fact that I want you. Wake up good morning, which you I actually mean it. Had to pinch my other arm, convince myself. And so, you know, Your Honor, we talked about this podcast focusing on young attorneys and helping them out through all the stages of litigation. Clearly from your resume, you've been there as a trial attorney all the way to the top position. So the first question I think all our viewers would ask is, is there a favorite position you have held out of all of them or or is each one unique in its own way? Well, I've enjoyed every position that I have held, but my favorite is definitely a trial lawyer. Okay. And now, you were in state and federal court, correct? Yes. And then any big difference there, one you preferred one of the over the other? You mean in terms of trying cases? Yes, sir. Well, you know, it's been 21 years since I uh, was a trial lawyer, but and a lot has changed since then. Back then, the the state courts weren't quite as sophisticated in terms of procedure and and evidence rules as as the federal courts were so it was a little bit of a difference there but but on the other hand the 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 federal judiciary back then was quite a bit rougher than it is now and so i didn't really have a preference one way or the other often it was a strategic decision i didn't do anything except represent plaintiffs so i had except in cases where there was a federal question or whether whether there was diversity we always had the choice of where to file the lawsuit well, and you just brought up a, a question that now that I think about it, when you talk about the federal procedure, how it was a little bit uh, more 
organized in a sense. The South Carolina Rules of Evidence officially came through in the mid-90s. What was that like as a trial attorney and then a trial judge shortly after that? Was it a, a big lot, a lot to learn or was it just kind of go make it up as you go? I don't know that it really changed a whole lot. The, the, the thing that took time to change was the culture of the state courts. And we had a, we had a, a culture of where the judges would kind of operate on this theory of, I'm just gonna let that in for what it's worth. And that was particularly true for expert opinion, expert testimony, but it was also true for other stuff as well. And that culture has, has changed over the years and judges are now a lot more involved in dealing substantively with evidence questions that I think they were back then. Well, and then, you know, one thing that I've, I've noticed is with the, the rules of evidence is, and I've gotten to, I didn't know them as well as I thought I should have as an assistant solicitor, but when you were a trial lawyer back, you know, back then, did you see other attorneys who were, you know, knew them very well, or is that something that attorneys lacked, you know, lacked in? Well, I, I would say that instead of talking about the rules, which are, are very important, the, I, I would focus more on whether the attorneys knew the concepts within the rules, knew the, the, the way to think through evidence problems, the way to evaluate from a thinking standpoint, how you set up the introduction of evidence, how you set up the, the opportunity to try to exclude evidence. You got to know the rules, but there are a lot of lawyers who know what the rules say, but they don't know what the rules mean. And I think that both back then and now, the number of lawyers out there trying cases who know what the rules actually mean and how to use them is small. It's kind of, it's kind of a rare thing to see. And one of one thing you taught me, and I know you teach teach everybody, is the the first thing with the rules of evidence, and it always helps me with any case I'm stuck on or issue is asking the question why. And could you explain to to young attorneys why that's so important when it comes to a piece of evidence? You know, figure out the why. Well, the rules are largely built on the concept of the purpose for which the evidence is being offered. If you look at hearsay, the question in hearsay is whether the evidence is offered for the purpose of proving the truth of the statement. If you look at character, then the, the admissibility question turns on whether the evidence is offered for the purpose of proving that the particular person acted in conformity with that character trait. And you have all sorts of individual rules like subsequent remedial measures or liability insurance or religious belief and opinion, that all is derivative of the idea of what is the purpose for which the evidence is offered. So I think that, and, and, and in almost every instance, there can be multiple purposes for any particular piece of evidence. So the struggle is over why are you really offering the evidence? And, you know, if somebody's offering hearsay, they will say, well, I'm not offering it to prove the truth. I'm offering it to prove this other point that relates to the simple fact that the statement might have been made in the first place. And then the, the party making the objection says, oh, no, you're offering it for the purpose of proving the truth. And the judge has to get in there and figure out, well, what, what really is the purpose? And, and, and in fact, there are always going to be two purposes. So the question becomes, well, what is the predominant purpose? Or then, then you get into balancing the probative value of the evidence for one purpose against perhaps some 
prejudice or unfair prejudice for the other purpose. And so the question of why the evidence is being offered is really central to pretty much every evidence question. You, you, you don't get it into purpose probably so much in, in, in dealing with opinion testimony, but to some extent you do. Well, and then for a young attorney out there, obviously the best way to learn the concepts of evidence and trial practice is to get into trials. But for young attorneys, is there advice you give to your clerks or to, to your students in advanced evidence about how to practice it and to, to learn it? Or is it just a matter of, you know, try a case? Well, the first thing is what you said. You got you to gotta go try cases. And, and that is increasingly difficult to do. I'm encouraged coming out of COVID to see that a lot of cases appear to be going to trial, to go into jury trials. And I hope, I'm hopeful that there'll be a trend there. I've actually been traveling around a decent amount lately. I spoke to a national group of defense lawyers, civil defense lawyers in Asheville. I spoke to the Southeastern chapter of the American Board of Trial Advocates in Destin, Florida about a week ago. And my, on, on the question of why are we not trying cases? Why are the civil jury trials so down? Everybody has, many people have heard this statistic, but in, in 1993 in Greenville County, South Carolina, uh, there were 176 civil verdicts, civil jury verdicts, just in state court, just in one county. And the last year that we could count those numbers without the influence of COVID was 2019, and there were 20 civil jury verdicts. So the, the, the fall off has affected in, in tremendous fashion the opportunity that young lawyers have to learn about evidence. And evidence is, it's like evidence is very much a part of trying cases. In fact, I've, I've often said, and I've given, I actually have given CLEs with, it, with this, top, this title, and that is that the practice of evidence, the admissibility of evidence is inseparable from trial strategy. You have to understand trial strategy. The judge needs to understand trial strategy in order to correctly evaluate the admissibility of evidence. And so the same difficulties that lawyers face in learning how to try cases because they can't get into trial are the same, are, are, are true for learning how to deal with evidence because you can't get into trial. Well, so the number one thing is go try a case. And I, I would say this to, to young lawyers, I was actually talking with a federal judge friend of mine last night, we were out uh, entertaining our, our law clerks for, for a happy hour and, and just talking about the practice of law and talking about what you asked, which is how, how do you develop yourself? And we were sharing stories between the two of us about how just utterly scared to death we were the first time, really every time we ever went to to, to do something important in a trial as a trial lawyer. And I think it's important for lawyers to, to know that that's common. So you, young lawyers are gonna have that, that feeling, but you just, you need to go try cases. And the idea, the idea that mediation is the way to go, that's, that's I mean, mediation is important. There's no doubt about it. And there are some cases that, many cases that need to be mediated and they can be settled. But we rely way too heavily on mediation right now to run the civil justice system. And everybody needs to be pushing to try cases. The plaintiff's lawyers, the defense lawyers, the insurance companies, the corporate defendants, everybody. The judges, particularly, need to be pushing to try cases and not forcing everybody to settle. Well, and one thing that made me think of is when you talk about the rule of evidence and the application 
when you're, you talk about a, a trial judge, they got to make that decision about the predominance of, you know, what's the purpose of it. Was it a weird transition or, or a different view when you became an appellate judge and then justice or the way you viewed evidence and had to make a decision or, or did, did you kind of see it the same way or with now that the, the standards have changed? Well, the one, the big difference that is always hard for a judge to keep in mind when you, when you become a judge or when you go to, to being a appellate court judge as opposed to a trial judge, your whole view of the situation is supposed to change. So as a, as a trial judge, you're not supposed to tell the lawyers what to do. Even if you think they're doing something ill-advised, they should be allowed to go ahead and do it. Did as you a, find that frustrating not to do that ever? Yeah, I, it, I'm not frustrating necessarily in a bad way, but I can remember many times when I would hear my ear would go off, you know, my alarm in my ear would go off. Somebody's about to say something that's inadmissible and, and I would look up and I'll never forget this one time, there's a lawyer in Charleston named John Tiller. He's a great lawyer and he was trying a case and, and I heard the witness about to say something that was, gonna, that was clearly inadmissible and my head popped up and I looked at John Tiller and he looked back at me with this look like, don't you dare say a word. And, and, and it was because he, he, sure, the evidence was inadmissible, but he wanted it in. So he was eager to hear it himself. Yeah, and I, so when, as, as a trial judge, you, it's, it's, it's not really frustrating, but it's, it's difficult. It's a challenge to learn how to sit back and let the trial lawyers do what they're supposed to do. As a trial judge, when there's an objection, you have to figure out how you're going to rule and figure out how you're going to rule correctly. And so you're very much involved in that analysis and you direct the analysis as a trial judge. As an appellate court judge, you got to sit back because the trial judges have discretion. And even though appellate court judges might decide, might have, might say, well, I wouldn't have decided the question that way. But still, it's within the judge's discretion to decide it that way. So that's, that's another challenge that is... Um, is it's a it's a fun challenge but it's very much a challenge to realize oh i'm not the trial judge anymore to sit back and let the judge exercise his or her discretion and i bet you probably it was probably interesting to see as opposed to when you're a trial judge you see it you feel it you have the emotion in the courtroom and as appellate when you read the transcript it's a little bit different uh, perspective what did you say yes and we were talking about trial dynamics and everything a minute ago and, and, the, and strategy. And one of the things that I think is, is very important for someone who is going to challenge a, an evidentiary ruling on appeal is to give the, give the appellate court as much as, as is possible that feeling that you're talking about, that, that trial dynamic feeling. And the, and the best way to do that is to include the opening statements and the closing arguments in the record, because that goes very much to this idea of purpose. You know, why is the evidence being offered? It goes very much to what, what is the probative value of, of a particular piece of evidence for one purpose? Uh, what is the prejudice that might arise from it? And it's hard to understand all that when you don't know what the lawyer's theory of the case is. And in order to get that theory of the case, you need to have the opening statement and closing argument. <clears throat> well, and one thing I found interesting, it, it sounded like you and your father were, had a, a tag team, had a great run together. And I, there was an article by Judge Anderson and the South Carolina lawyer where he talked about the few team. What was it like practicing with your father as a trial attorney? Was that a, you know, just a great, sounds like a great honor. 
Yeah, it was. It was. Um, we we did a lot of. We tried a lot of cases in front of Ross Judge Ross Anderson, a federal district judge who's since passed away. But I I had clerked for him, and and he was tough. And he, you know, candidly, he did not like my dad. <laughs> And they had a long history of going back when they were both lawyers and they butted heads when they were lawyers. And, and my dad was, was a strong personality and did not really let Judge Anderson push him around. And Judge Anderson didn't like it. And so we, we were able to divide up the responsibilities. Even when I was a very young lawyer, I would do the opening statements and the direct examinations in most cases, because that's when Judge Anderson would try to interfere with lawyers. And my dad would do most of the cross-examination and the closing argument because that's when Judge Anderson, when he had a good, good attorney in the courtroom, he would sit back and let the attorney just do his or her work. So that kind of was our, and that was an easier way for me to learn too, because it's a lot, you know, doing an opening statement and doing a direct examination is a lot more mechanical than doing a cross-examination or a closing argument because those are more, you, you really got to have a better feel and that's something you learn to do well later in your, in your, in your career. You can make yourself learn to be to conduct a good direct examination. Well, when you talked about opening statement, we had a deputy solicitor Dan Goldberg on last week, and he talked about opening and how to, you know, tell a story, give a preview. Is there something when when you were a trial lawyer or a circuit court judge, your advice to to lawyers about what a good opening was or what a bad opening was? Well, let's see, the, the number one thing for, for, the number one thing for trial performance is probably experience. And uh, so I'll come back to that. I remember there, there's a, speaking of Judge Anderson, there's a recording that was made at the USC Law School in the spring of 1985 when Irving Younger came to the University of South Carolina to speak about trials and about evidence and things of that nature. And Judge Anderson had those audio tapes and he gave them to me. I have them right here in my office today as I sit here in Columbia. And, 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 and well, Judge Irving, Professor Irving, Lawyer Irving made the point that in order to attain a minimal, what he called a minimal level of competence as a trial lawyer, you needed 25 jury trials to verdict. And just so having that experience is something that will enable lawyers to construct better opening statements. But the second thing, which is parallel to experience and maybe even just as important is preparation, hard, hard deep, thorough, creative, strategic preparation. And that, those are the two keys for making a great opening statement. You, you know, everybody talks about having a theme. You got to have a theme. You don't have to have some corny theme, but you, you got to have a theme for your case. That's very important. And you need to speak in practical terms that the jury can understand. But all those things kind of flow from experience and preparation. And well, let me, and then on opening, this will be the last question on opening. I'm just curious because I, I have this rule I made up and and I'm curious, you probably would be the best person to ask. When it comes to openings, I prefer them to be shorter. On the criminal side, in my head, the rule of thumb for me is that the opening shouldn't be longer than the amount of jail time that the case carries. So a murder is 30 years, shouldn't be longer than 30 minutes. A magistrate DUI case is 30 days or 30 seconds. That's just something I made up in my head. <laughs> what, is that any, well, does that make any sense to you? 
Sure. I, the, the idea of making things short is definitely makes a lot of sense. The, I, I'm not a real big fan of rigid rules. I think that lawyers need to decide on a case by case basis, what their strategic concerns are and how to meet those strategic concerns. And to, to lay some down, some sort of formula is counter productive to that in my opinion. But, but I, I think that short is almost always better. And, and hardly anybody gives a short enough closing argument or opening statement. They go on a little too long. Well, I know I've I've done that before too on 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 many of cases. And I, you know, I think I just got to get one more point across, one more thing, and the jury's already asleep by then. You know, one thing that lawyers, experienced trial lawyers keep in mind is that it's an interactive event, an opening statement. And certainly a closing argument is an interactive event. You're interacting with the jury and when, and there are going to be points that need to be made either in an opening or in a closing that somebody on the jury can make. So it's, it's, you're not the only person who is going to be advocating. If you have any chance of winning, you're going to have your own advocates on that jury and arming those advocates with the information and the, and the arguments that they need to win the arguments against the other jurors. That's, a key thing to think about. So you can kind of trust, you might get beat 12 to zero and, and, and you don't have any advocates on the jury, but if you have any chance of winning, you have to trust that your advocates on the jury can do their job. That, that's a, an excellent point. And so, you know, Joe, he couldn't make it today, but he insisted that I ask about some appellate questions. He, he does a lot of appellate work and, you know, he want, he wanted to know what's what do you see that with compelling legal writing? When you get those briefs, what's something you see that young lawyers need to start doing more of or that they aren't doing now? Well, the, the most difficult aspect of any legal endeavor, anything in the law, whether it's meeting with your client the first time or conducting a mediation or taking a deposition or trying a case or handling an appeal is to develop an accurate and thorough understanding of what the issue actually is. And I, it's not like I always know what the issue is and other people don't. It's that people just disagree. It's, it's, it's routine that two really smart, very well-prepared people will look at the same issue and disagree about whether issue, what the issue really is. So a lawyer who comes in with a really good understanding of the fluidity sort of, of what their issue is can converse intelligently with different judges who have different views of what the issue is. So that, that to me is, is very important. And people seem to address that kind of mechanically. You know, I think it's kind of like when in civil cases, lawyers who don't take enough time in, in the beginning phases of the trial or not trial the before, way before trial to, to draft a complaint that is that accurately addresses what the real issues are that happens all too often that certainly is true in criminal cases prosecutors around South Carolina historically and today from my observation pay almost no attention to their indictment that's a mistake and it's the same thing when you're preparing for, so it's like the, the complaint and the indictment are the foundational documents for the trial. And on appeal, the foundational thing is the issue on appeal. And so it needs to be very well thought through, which 
you know, that helps lawyers when they do that. And the other thing is that when lawyers write, it's very helpful to us if the lawyer is just head up, just addresses the, the difficult aspects of their case head on instead of trying to maybe avoid a lot of lawyers write as though they're avoiding avoiding the difficult issue. And I know this is true on our court. You can't you can't fool us. Our judges on the Supreme Court, and this was true when I was at the Court of Appeals as well. They are going to be very well prepared and they are going to dig behind what you say and they're going to know what's in the record. They're going to know what the cases that you cite actually say and what they what they mean and what their significance is. And so trying to write your brief with the understanding that you are creating a dialogue. When you write a brief, you are creating a dialogue between yourself and the judge, between the judges, between the law clerks and the judges. The, those dialogues are, are going to be deep and thorough dialogues. And if you write your brief as a, so that it can be a facilitation, so that it can facilitate that dialogue with that deep discussion, then you're on, you're moving in the right direction. If you write the brief without a whole lot of in-depth thought and analysis, then the judges are simply going to put your brief down and do their own work to get ready for trial. I mean, get ready for the hearing. Well, I think you just made so far two great points among many others, but for young attorneys is that you're not necessarily speaking to one person. So you're getting the judge to have a conversation or the justice to have a conversation that they're going to carry on, as well as when you're talking with jurors, that you're not just talking to the jurors, but you're having a discussion with them. And so I think that's a fascinating point to help, you know, for them to understand that it's not just a one one person thing. It's not just a one-way conversation, but you want to spark a conversation on the right foot. So I think that's a, a fantastic point. And, and I know we're... Uh, there's a, a famous South Carolinian that far too people know very much about who was on the United States Supreme Court in 1940 and 1941 named Jimmy Burns. Mm -hmm. And he wrote his, he had a law clerk, his only law clerk wrote an essay. I'm looking for it right now, but I think it's called something about uh, having a seat at the table. And, and it's a discussion about how when communicating with the court, you, you, you should think of yourself as being a participant in the dialogue that the judges will have around the conference table before and after your hearing. And so you, you, can, it, you, you do well to think of yourself as framing your brief, framing your arguments so that it becomes a useful tool to those judges when sitting around the conference table. And of course, you want it to be useful in the fashion that it helps your client out. Right. And I know that's what everyone would like to be, the sixth justice on the uh, Supreme Court. You know, that's everyone's dream job. So that's a great way to think about it. And I know we're, we're getting short on time. So just, just to wrap it up, thinking about, you know, you've talked about law clerks. And I think being a law clerk for any judge or justice is a great way to get advice over your years as a circuit court judge, court of appeals, and Supreme Court, is there any advice that you gave to your law clerks that wasn't do this, but don't do that? You've seen attorneys do something and you go back after court and you said, don't ever do what that attorney did or don't ever write what they wrote. Because that's, I think the first step, it's kind of like a doctor, do no harm as an attorney. You know, you'd rather be forgotten than remember for doing something really bad or uh, making someone mad. Is there something that sticks out for young attorneys to absolutely avoid doing? Well, I, I honestly, I don't really like thinking in terms of what 
of what lawyers uh, should never do because I'm not aware of the, of the situations that might arise in which some creative lawyer thinks that doing what I would say don't do is actually a good idea. But, and I, I remember one time I spoke on a, I got invited to speak on a panel of judges and the, and the topic of discussion was judges pet peeves. And my only purpose for going to speak on this panel was to say that my, my only pet peeve is judges who have pet peeves. <laughs> and, but, but if you, if you want if you want to frame the question in terms of what a lawyer should never do, then the only way I know to answer that question is to say a lawyer should never allow themselves to believe that they fully understand what they're working on yet. There is always a deeper level of understanding that a lawyer and a judge can get to. And we fool ourselves into thinking that we know what we're working on. We understand what we're working on, but very, I, I mean, I would say never. There's always an opportunity to get to a deeper level of understanding. And lawyers have to, you know, if you, if you go and look at the best lawyers, like, yeah, I don't have to tell you who they are and the people who are listening don't have to be, hear me say who they are. Just use your own recollection and observation to determine who they are. And then watch how they think through a problem. They always think behind any words that they're shown, any documents that they're shown, any theories that, they're, that they have explained to them. These lawyers are, the best lawyers are always thinking several steps deeper be, and beyond what everybody else in the courtroom is thinking. And that, let, that kind of deep thinking is hard to learn, but it is essential to any lawyer who wants to eventually be a great lawyer. Well, Your Honor, on that note, I, I think all of that is extremely great advice for young attorneys. So to, to have a long, a lengthy and, you know, prosperous legal career. So, you know, we can't thank you enough for appearing today on the podcast, going over your advice. We thank you for everything you have done for your service and for being here today. And we look forward to maybe getting you on the podcast again next year with some more appellate work when we get Joe back on the show. Okay, well, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Daniel. All right, thank you, Your Honor. Obligations when you got no one to run to. I know you got a past, but I got one to. And that's on change the fact that I want you. Wake up, good morning. With you, I actually mean it. Had to pinch my other arm, convince myself I still dreaming. I'm with you, can't nothing phase me. Drowning, but you saved me. My head pounded like crazy. So can we just be lazy?